so last week, we had James teach technically the second lesson in this series. So two weeks ago, I got pretty sick. Um, and so instead of starting with an example of what to do, we started with an example of what not to do. Uh, we looked at Solomon, um, who started off good, started off being raised up, um, raising up the temple, a place of worship for God, really doing some incredible things for God, and then becoming very self-reliant, um, very um, involved in building up his own kingdom. We saw him with his concubines and his wives and all these different things. Um, and he kind of forgot about God. Um, we didn't talk about this as much, but it's reflective in his writings. When you look at Proverbs, when you look at Ecclesiastes, which we're unsure whether or not he wrote that, but it's about him. We know that. Um, when we look at different things, we very much see that he is even warning his children to remember God. Um, he he kind of comes to the end of his life and he realizes that he's dropped the ball. Um, but today we're going to look at, I think, one of the most underrated characters in the Bible. Honestly. Um, and I didn't think that before I was studying out this passage, before I was really looking at him. Um, but after looking at him and really looking at his character, I was like, I can't believe that I don't have quiet times on this passage regularly. Um, there's, it was actually really hard to simmer this down into one lesson because I was like, there's so much here. In just three chapters of the Bible, we're going to look at King Asa. Um, and there's, it's three, it's Second Chronicles 14 through 16, and it's just packed full of things to learn. Um, he's one of the, like, best-reviewed kings. Um, Chronicles isn't really nice to the kings. The kings kind of messed up a lot. Um, God warned Israel about kings. He, they said, you don't need a king. They insisted. And, the, and just like God kind of predicted over and over again, um, because they weren't being led by a perfect God, they were being led by an imper imperfect people, they dropped the ball. But King Asa is reviewed very well. Um, he, he really went all in for God. And it says that he served God his entire life um, with, a, with his whole heart. Was he perfect? Did he mess up? Yes. And we're going to take a look at that as well today. Um, but we're really going to take a look at his life and see what we can learn about being all in for God. Um, the title of my lesson today is The Secret to Success. Um, and I think we're going to learn a lot about what success is and even what sex, success can be with God. Last week we got a sports analogy. I am not a sports person. Sue me. I, I was raised in a house where sports were everything, like literally... I would go into my dad's room to watch TV because he had cable in his room. It was the only room that had cable. And the way he would know is I forgot to turn the channel back to ESPN. Like that's, like he turned the TV on and it'd be on some other channel. And he was like, this is, were you in my room? And of course I would lie. No, I only watch ESPN, Anthony. What are you doing? I am a nerd to my core. Harry Potter, Lord of the Rings, the works. And so you're going to get a nerdy reference from me. Um, so one person who I think went all in, both for God and for the fantasy world, is J.R. Tolkien. Um, he wrote arguably the most immersive fantasy world 
next sorry, Salvatore. Fight me on it. Um, that the world has ever seen. He wrote cultures, languages, worlds into existence. But he also wrote incredible books for God, um, incredible man of faith. He has this quote that I think is incredibly inspiring and relative um, to what we're going to talk about today. And what he says is, no half-heartedness and no worldly fear must turn us aside from following the light unflinchingly. This is reflected in his writing. Um, Gandalf over and over again in The Lord of the Rings reminds um, Frodo that there's hope and that we have to cling to that. Um, it's, the whole, it's the whole story. It's incredible. It's powerful. Um, if you haven't watched it, shame on you. <laughs> Go watch it. We'll have a movie marathon soon. Um, but um, I think we really see that in Ace's life. And so we're going to start with scripture. It's going to be a lot of scripture today. I think it's all valuable, um, and I think it's powerful. So if you guys can turn to Second Chronicles 14, we're going to go ahead and get started. And Abihah rested with his ancestors and was buried in the city Abijah. Sorry. Rested with his ancestors and was buried in the city of David. Asa, his son, succeeded him as king, and in his days the country was at peace for ten years. Asa did what was good and right in the eyes of the Lord his God. He removed the foreign altars in the high places, smashed the sacred stones, and cut down the Asherah poles. Asherah, you pick. He commanded Judah to seek the Lord, the God of their ancestors, and to obey his laws and commands. He removed the high places and the incense altars in every town in Judah, and the kingdom was at peace under him. He built up the fortified cities of Judah since the land was at peace. No one was at war with him during those years, for the Lord gave him rest. Let us build up these towns, he said to Judah, and put walls around them with towers, gates, and bars. The land is still ours because we have sought the Lord our God. We sought him, and he has given us rest on every side, so they built and prospered. Asa had an army of 300,000 men from Judah, equipped with large shields and with spears, and 280,000 from Benjamin, armed with small shields and with bows. All these were brave fighting men. Zerah, the Cushite, marched out against them with an army of thousands upon thousands. Some translations say a thousand thousands, a million. And 300 chariots came as far as Maresha. Asa went out to meet him, and they took up battle positions in the valley of Zephathah near Maresha. Then Asa called to the Lord his God. There we go. Forgot where it ended. Then Asa called to the Lord his God and, the Lord, and said, Lord, there is no one like you to help the powerless against the mighty. Help us, Lord, Lord our God. For we rely on you, and in your name we have come against this vast army. Lord, you are our God. Do not let mere mortals prevail against you. The Lord struck down the Cushites before Asa and Judah. The Cushites fled, and Asa and his army pursued them as far as Gerar. Such a great number of Cushites fell that they could not recover. They were crushed before the Lord and his forces. The men of Judah carried off a large amount of plunder. They destroyed all the villages around Gerar, for the terror of the Lord had fallen on them. They looted all these villages, since there was much plunder there. 
They also attacked the camps of the herders and carried off droves of sheep and goats and camels. And then they returned to Jerusalem. Guys, it's so cool seeing the way that God defends his people. A little bit of background information now. So Asa's rule was from about 913, 910 to 873, 869 BC. It's a 41-year reign. It's a pretty long reign for a king. He's the fifth king in David's line. So he's in the line of David. The third king of Judah, though. Judah separate, or Israel separated into Judah and Benjamin and then all the other tribes. This was, he was described as doing what was good in the Lord's eyes. And I think that's something to remember. Why? What did he do that was so pleasing to God? What did he do? It wasn't the war, because he was described as that before. He was given 10 years of peace before this war. It's because he put God first. It's very clear that honoring God, that the people of God honoring God was important in him. And he put that into action. He removed idols. We're not going to have none of that under me. He made that clear. He destroyed their places of worship. When the Bible says high places, those are places they would have gone to worship idols. I didn't know that. I like, had to go look that up. So a little bit of background information. It's like the high places. I was like, what does that mean? These are places they would have gone to lift up God, to lift up these false gods, to worship in these places. He smashed their sacred stones, the places that they would have seen as sacred to these gods, the things that they would have said as uplifting or even claiming of certain areas to these gods. He cut down the poles of Asherah. Now, once again, didn't know who that was before this sermon, so a little bit of background. This was the god that Jezebel worshipped. This was a um, one of the many faces of Baal. Um, it was all about, like, really celebrating the feminine, which to a degree is very good, but it was to a point where it was, it was that the feminine is godly, that the feminine is to be worshipped, that the feminine, and it put it in this place where you would see things like prostitution, you would see things like orgies, you would see things like fertility rites, things like that, all pulling honor from God. This wasn't honoring the woman in God's image, this was honoring the woman separate from God. It was dangerous. He called them to seek and obey the Lord, which was something that his, his, his father did not do. He called them back to the laws that he knew to be righteous, and he held them accountable to that. But he personally sought God. And because of that, he was rewarded with peace. Now this, we think of 10 years of peace, and we're like, so what? They went 10 years without a war. That's not a big deal, whatever. During this time, that was not common. Like, that was not a thing that happened. You were constantly at war. You were constantly defending yourself. You were constantly, I mean, you read through David, especially with Israel, they were surrounded by their enemies and were constantly defending in some way, shape, or form. That's huge. And during this time, he still honored God. He decided to rebuild God's cities, to rebuild the people of God. Why? Not because we need to be ready, but because these are God's lands, he said. It's such a, it's this beautiful, beautiful representation of what it looks like to put God first. It's powerful, but it's also powerful because you see the way that God rewards it and defends it. You see what it is to walk with God and to walk with a God that is powerful enough to protect. But the 10 years didn't last forever, obviously. 
and he faces this army. First of all, he's got 580,000 men. That's not a small army. I'm not keeping up. Oh, yes, I am. Look at me. Um, sorry. I'm bad at slides. Um, 580,000 men. That's not like... That's pretty big. He's doing pretty good. One of the things that stands out to me in his prayer is he still refers to himself as powerless. With his 580,000 men, he still comes and he said, only you are able to protect the powerless. He doesn't, he's not relying on himself here. He's not trying to strategize and figure out if we put the men here and we do this here and we come from this angle. He comes to this place of, no, God, first and foremost. This showdown, so he's going up against a thousand men or a million men. So it is a bigger army. To me, this showdown is with Gideon and his 300,000, with his 300, David and Goliath, the Spartan 300. Once again, I'm a nerd. I'm sorry. It's got to be thrown in there. This is big, right? Like, this is huge. But his response honestly looks really unintuitive. He goes out. Seemingly without a strategy, honestly. Like, he's like, we're going to go out and meet these men. This million-man army with our 580,000, we're going to go out. He personally engages. He leads the men. He's at the forefront. He's there. Asa went out to meet him, it says. He puts himself in the fight, and he puts himself in a position where the only way out of this is for God to move. That takes faith. That takes a trust in God. He also prays. And this is the powerful part. And I'm going to read it again. It says, Lord, there is no one like you to help the powerless against the mighty. Help us, Lord, our God, for we rely on you. And in your name, we have come against this vast army. Lord, you are our God. Do not let more mere mere mortals prevail against you. This is short. What does that take? Two seconds to pray? It's a short prayer, but it's packed. One, it's humble. It's incredibly humble. We are powerless here. I don't know if I would have said that. I would have been like, we're overwhelmed. There's more of them. He's like, I have nothing without you. Like, there's no chance without you here. I don't know if I, like, naturally, that's not, I start counting my resources. That's my natural place. Okay, this is where we are, I assess. I, may have, I only have 580,000 men. I may have said that. But to, to put myself in a place of I'm powerless without you, God, that's humble. We rely on you. It's this trust in God that if you don't show up, I'm not going to be able to do this. This is John 15, y'all. This is remaining in the vine. This is apart from you, I can do nothing. This is beautiful. He also channels his, his, his great-great-granddaddy a little bit here. And he says, we come against you, we come against this army in your name. That's David and Goliath right there, y'all. That's, in, you, in your name, I will, in God's name, I will conquer today. But it's also about God. And that's what, I didn't catch the first time reading through this, I didn't catch the second time reading through this, 
I, I, I kind of had to go back and meditate on it to see that he's like, you are our God. Do not let these mere mortals prevail. Don't let them embarrass you. Don't let them be able to go back to their villages and say, I guess the God of Israel isn't that powerful. This is about, like, he's in this prayer. This is about God. Like, he's like, his heart is so in. And I think this combination, this prayer, this personal engagement, this faithful expectation of God to move, this is what it looks like to be all in. This is what it looks like to be like, my chips are on the table. What you going to do about it? It's hard, though. This is a terrifying situation. Can you imagine? I can't even think of what a million people looks like in my head. But to think about facing a million people and looking out on that and to have this heart, it's incredible. But what we see is that God derives the glory from it. God derives this power from it that is incredibly humbling. Because over and over again in this passage, it's, and the, he went up against them with the Lord, and the Lord conquered, and the Lord brought it. But even following it, they come back, and they make, they, out, of the, out of their plunder, they make sacrifices to God. It wasn't, we're doing this for us. It's, let, let's give back what God has given to us. His reliance on God in crisis brought him both victory, success, but it also brought glory to God. And I think as Christians, as disciples, that's what we want to do every day of our lives. I, this, is, this is the other part of it. When you're not relying on God, you get the glory. It's possible, I don't know, 580,000, I mean, we've seen some crazy stories of wars. I mean, we think of the, the things that happened even just in our own civil war with being outnumbered. It's, po- it's probably possible that he could have pulled something off with these 580,000 men. But because he decided to be reliant on God, God gets the glory out of it. This isn't a credit to Asa, which is incredibly powerful. We go on and we see the after effect of it. The Spirit of God came on Azariah, son of Oded. He went out to meet Asa and said to him, listen to me, Asa and all Judah and Benjamin, the Lord is with you when you are with him. If you seek him, he will be found by you. But if you forsake him, he will forsake you. If you read on in this passage, it goes on and it shows the history of Israel. He talks about the history of Israel. He talks about how Israel has been conquered. Israel has been through hard times, etc. But because of your faith, God is honored. Jump down to verse 7. It says, but as for you, be strong and do not give up, for your work will be rewarded. When Asa heard these words and the prophecy of Azariah, son of Oded, the prophet, he took courage. He removed the detestable idols from the whole land of Judah and Benjamin. Once again, we could read this entire passage, but it goes on to show all the actions he takes in following this. And there was no more war until the 35th year of Asa's reign. This is the secret to success, guys. This is my, like, honestly, most of my point sits here, if I'm honest. But true success hinges 
True success hinges on our seeking God and remaining wholehearted and independent on him. Now, once again, I put true success in here. I think often we can redefine what success is in our own eyes and not in God's eyes. And we set ourselves up for failure. And we honestly oftentimes short ourselves, as we'll see later in this passage, as to what success actually is. This is a cool prophecy. It honestly sounds a lot like a lot of what, when we talk to people about what seeking God looks like, this sounds like a lot of those passages. I've even used this passage to talk to people about what God, what seeking God looks like. But he says, when you seek him, you will find him. It's a promise. He's with you when you're with him. It's a promise. When you forsake him, he will forsake you. And that can feel really harsh. To me, I read that and I was like, that's not my God, surely. My God is gracious and loving, but my God is also just. And he needs me to walk with him. Or he wants me to walk with him. I need to walk with him. Let's flip that. Our relationship with God is dynamic. And it's powerfully dynamic. It's, I mean, you see here, when you walk with him, what can happen? We've all seen it. We've all had those times of highs where we're walking with God and we're like, oh my gosh, all this is going on, but I still have joy and I still have peace. And then we have the times where we walk and we're kind of relying on ourselves. It's, it's a powerful reminder, though. And it's mostly positive, with a little bit of warning. But I think it was needed as we see what happens later in Ace's life. We're going to continue reading. Like I said, it's a lot of scripture today. In the 36th year of Asa's reign... Basha, king of Israel, went up against Judah and fortified Ramah to prevent anyone from leaving or entering the territory of Asa, king of Judah. Asa then took the silver and gold out of the treasuries of the Lord's temple and of his own palace and sent it to Ben-Hadad, king of Aram, who is ruling Damascus. Let there be a treaty between me and you, he said, as there was between my father and your father. See, I am sending you silver and gold. Now break your treaty with Basha, king of Israel, so he will withdraw from me. Ben-Hadad agreed with King Asa and sent the commanders of his forces against the towns of Israel. They conquered Ejon, Dan, Abel, Maim, and all the store cities of Naphtali. When Basha heard this, he stopped building Ramah and abandoned his work. Then King Asa brought all the men of Judah and then carried away from Ramah the stones and timber Basha had been using. With them, he built up Geba and Mitzvah. At that time, Hanani, the seer, came to Asa, king of Judah, and said to him, Because you relied on the king of Aram and not the Lord your God, the army of the king of Aram has escaped from your hand. Were not the Cushites and the Libyans a mighty army with great numbers of chariots and horsemen? Yet when you relied on the Lord, he delivered them into your hand. For the eyes of the Lord range throughout the earth to strengthen those whose hearts are fully committed to him. You have done a foolish thing, and from now on you will be at war. Asa was angry with the seer because of this. He was so enraged that he put him in prison. At the same time, Asa brutally oppressed some of the people. The events of Asa's reign from beginning to end are written in the book of Kings 
of Judah and Israel. And in the 39th year of his reign, Asa was afflicted with a disease in his feet. Though his disease was severe, even in his illness, he did not seek help from the Lord, but only from the physicians. Then in the 41st year of his reign, Asa died and rested with his ancestors. They buried him in a tomb that he had cut out for himself in the city of David. They laid him on the bear covered with spices and various blended perfumes, and they made a huge fire in his, armor, in his honor. So war comes again, knocking. Sounds like a smaller force, honestly, but I think Something to note is why war came. Why did this treaty get made? Why did this nation go into panic? Why did this nation feel like it needed to attack? And it was because people were leaving these cities in droves. They were coming to where God was being glorified. They were coming to where God was being lifted up. They were coming to be with King Asa and the success that God had provided. This always happens when the people of God glorify God. It's attractive. It's peaceful. It's joyous. They were like, this place has had peace for 25 years. There ain't nowhere else that has had that. This place is wealthy. This place is taken care of. Their cities are fortified. God had provided in an incredible way for Judah. And that was attractive to people. And it sent these kings into panic. And so they're like, we need, to, we need to do something about this. But how did Asa respond this time? It's a little different. First of all, he doesn't even gather his armies. Like he, he's... He, it's very obvious that he doesn't see this as as big of a threat. He's not worried about it. He's not engaged personally. He's not putting his own skin in the game. He's putting his past, like he's even relying on his past victory, literally using the, store, the money that they've taken from this past victory to fund this new treaty. What's worthy of noting is technically he got what he wanted. He got peace, right? He, this got alleviated, the treaty got broken, this king didn't have the forces to attack, and he moved on. Technically, he got what he wanted. But did he get what he could have gotten if he had relied on God? I think he knew these people a little bit better. He knew this situation a little better. He's a little more confident as a king, probably, too, at this point. He knew the politics. He knew how to handle things. He knew how to talk to people. He was like, oh, if I do this, this king is worried about money. If I give him money... He's not going to follow through in this treaty. He's a little more, he, he knows the game a little bit better. He doesn't even talk to God about it. There's not a prayer in this passage. He doesn't get advice. He, like, it's completely different. Instead of relying on action in God, he resorts to a reliance on money, personal wisdom, politics, and people. If that's not relatable, I don't know what is. <laughs> he uses the money he won in the war, the blessings of God's victory, and gives them away. 
he seems to have forgotten the lesson and the warning that he got 25 years earlier. He seems to have forgotten God. Two things happen when we don't go all in for God. Probably a lot more, but two main things. One, worldly fixes and hacks tend to push problems down the road rather than bring enduring success. He gets war for the rest of his life out of this. He alleviates one battle and he moves on to over and over war. He missed out on an opportunity to see God in an incredible way. The seer makes that perfectly clear. She says, did not God deliver this million man army to you? Because you have relied on yourself, on the king of Aram. This army has escaped your hand. And you could have had more in your stores and now you have less. You could have had peace for even longer and now you have less. When we redefine success in our own eyes and we don't even consult God on it, we shortchange ourselves often. But I think the bigger thing that happens when we don't go all in for God is where our self-reliance leads us. Self-reliance starts a domino effect of more sin, and we see this here. He got mad at the correction. He's ups- like He gets upset. He ends up oppressing people in his kingdom. My suspicion is that these, king, these people supported the seer. It's not written here, but that's, kind of like, that's the only thing that makes sense to me when I read this passage. Like, why would he oppress some people? They probably were like, we could have had peace, dummy. Like, and he's like, you're going in prison too. Like, he's, he's, he's done. But he even carried this self-reliance into his private life. There's a shame that I've personally experienced that comes when we know we're not handling things the way God wants us to handle things. And so when he gets sick, he doesn't pray to God. When the wars come, he doesn't pray to God. When the seer challenges him, he's not humble. There's, it's a snowball effect. Asa was a good man overall. That's what it says about him. It says Asa's heart, in 15, in 15 verse 7, it says Asa's heart was fully committed to the Lord. He messed up. And that one mess up created, and his refusal to be humble to that one mess up, created a snowball effect that lasted until his grave. This happens today. Straight up. This happens to individuals. This happens to churches. This happens to me in my life. There are so many distractions on a daily basis, so many obstacles on a daily basis, that I have to make a personal choice on who I'm going to rely on in. Who am I going to go all in with? Or am I going to be one foot in, one foot out? Am I going to serve two masters? Am I going to rely on Anthony and God? Or am I going to rely on God? Am I going to put myself into full submission? Here's just a couple examples. I had to end with an ellipsis because I was like, on and on and on we can go. 
But a couple examples of things that I can struggle with, choosing to be, go all in for God, is my personal goals, personal projects, things that I want to see done, my health issues. This has hit home for me really big recently. Life decisions, how I live, down to even just contribution and where I spend my money. Facing crises, financial setbacks. Guys, recently I've, I've had a slew of health issues. Moving to a new city, slew of health issues, not really having relationships where I want them to be, setting goals and, and projects for a new ministry that I'm a part of, and it's been a wrestle. I'm grateful to have people like James in my life. I'm grateful to have people like Sam in my life. I'm grateful to have people like Sam in my life. There's who, people like Matt, who will challenge me and be like, mm, I don't think you're all in here. Mm, I think you're a little too focused on yourself right now. Mm, I think your goal is a little more important than God's goal right now. It's hard. This is difficult. Being all in is a daily decision. Sometimes it's a minute by minute decision, if I'm perfectly honest. Sometimes I'm on the highway and someone cuts me off and the minute before I was singing a worship song. <laughs> and the next minute I'm not exactly viewing that person in the image of God. <laughs> like, minute by minute. Sometimes, honestly. But look at what it says in verses 8 and 9 about how God feels. It says, when you relied on the Lord, he delivered them into your hand. For the eyes of the Lord range throughout the earth to strengthen those whose hearts are fully committed to him. You have done a foolish thing, and from now on you will be at war. God is searching this earth for people who will be wholeheartedly for him. He's literally actively looking for it. The Bible references this. Jesus references his pearls, treasures, gold. He talks about the kingdom of God seeking after these things. But a fully committed heart moves God. It really does. And so I ask you, when God's eyes rest on you, what does he see? Does he see someone who's all in? Does he see someone who's 75% in, 50? Does he see someone who prioritizes him? Now there's grace here. We all fall short. <laughs> Lord knows I fall short. <laughs> what would this look like for us? Like, take a second this week while you're having your quiet times, while you're praying, while you're thinking of what it would look like. If How your life would look different. How this church would look different. How this city would look different. If we decided to go all in. If we decided to be wholeheartedly committed. 
how would that change your relationship with your neighbors? How would that change your relationship with your coworkers? How would that change your relationship with your roommate? How would that change your marriage? How would that change your parenting? How would that change? Guys, I know for me, it would revolutionize my life. So I leave you with a couple of next steps. One, take a different approach to the trials and crises in your life. I think oftentimes I can kind of show up to God and I'm like, so what are you going to do? As opposed to having a faithful expectation that he will move. As having a knowledge and an assurance and a trust that my God desires to protect and provide for me. Take personal action. Put skin in the game. If you want to see community in this church, reach out and build relationship. If you want deeper friendships in your life, start reaching out to people to get coffee once a week. Be consistent. If you want a deeper relationship with God, extend your quiet times. Wake up a little earlier so you can get a little more time with him. Take personal action and see how the Lord's eyes are ranging and looking for that and the way he rewards it. Pray, pray to God for deliverance. Involve him. I talked about this yesterday. I'll talk about it again today. I'll talk about it for the rest of my life. There's power in humbling yourself before God. There's power in putting yourself in a place of, I'm powerless to do this, but you have all the power to do this. And if you want this changed, it'll change, and I know that. And then repent from the things you can be reliant on. For me, I put a couple of mine. Money. When my bank account starts hitting lower numbers, I, I can panic. Human wisdom my own experiences, the things that I know and see. God does miracles. Politics. This was big for me. If you scroll back a couple years on my Facebook, you won't like what you find. I'll just tell you that. It was bad. And people. This has been huge for me recently. I've felt a void from moving from one place where I had invested nine years into relationships, had people that walked with me in my daily life, People I had baptized, people I had studied with, people I had studied the Bible with other people with, people who had discipled me, trained me, built me up. And I'm, I'm now filling that void, and in my panic, I'm reaching out for that and not necessarily reaching for God and reaching to be closer to God. And God has, through multiple people now, challenged me to be more reliant on him. These are mine. Take time this week, think about what yours are, and make a plan to cut down those idols from your life and to remove those high places. Guys, if we can go all in for God, I think we can change this city. I think we can change this world. But we really do have to go all in. He wants wholeheartedness. I think we're going to have the worship team come up and do another song. Um, actually, no, James is going to come up and make an announcement, and then the worship team is going to come up and do another song. Thank you, guys.